0: Welcome to the LaGrave CRC Sermon Podcast. Today we will be ending the Holy Habits series with a sermon by Reverend Peter Yonker, titled Sent Out. This morning's Bible reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. I'll read verses 16 through 20, the last five verses of that Gospel. And uh, before I actually take it out and read it, open open your Bibles and get ready, I'm going to read it in a little bit. I want to set up the reading. As I, Bob mentioned, this is the last sermon in our Holy Habits series. So for the last five weeks, we've been thinking about the habit of worship, this ritual that we participate in every week. And we been thinking about what worship does to us. How does the Holy Spirit operate in the elements of worship? What is the Holy Spirit doing to us when we go through these motions, through this ritual every week? And today we come to the end of our series and the end of worship, and we will be talking about our conclusion and being sent. What does the spirit form in us at the conclusion of our worship, and what is worship for? What is its ultimate purpose? And to address that question, I, I chose a passage at the end of Matthew. Okay, I chose the passage where the disciples, it's after the resurrection, they've been called by Jesus, To go stand on a mountainside in Galilee and Jesus comes to them and he gives them what might be considered final instructions. He's about to leave them, ascend into heaven, and he has some last words to say to them. And it strikes me that the disciples, as they stand on that mountainside and hear those last words from Jesus, they are in a similar spiritual position to us at the conclusion of our worship. Think about it. The disciples have just experienced the whole gospel of Jesus. They've literally lived the whole gospel of Jesus, right? They've received his blessing and they've met him. They've heard his call to repent, to follow his ways. They've heard his preaching. They've heard lots of sermons. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his parables. They sat at the table with him. They've seen his death and resurrection, that central act of his ministry, and now he's about to leave. So they've experienced the whole of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. Now what? That's very similar to where we stand at the end of our worship. Now granted, we compress the whole story into an hour, but a good worship service, you experience the whole gospel of Jesus. You're greeted by his grace. You're called to repent. You hear his words, you hear his power. Sometimes you sit at his table. Centrally, you hear about his death and resurrection and how that saves the world and how it saves us. And then the worship service comes to an end and you go out there and then the question is, okay, now what? What was all this for? The disciples lived the story 2,000 years ago and then went out. We are immersed in the story every week and then it's our turn. And what does Jesus say to us As the service concludes and we leave this place let's listen to what he says to his disciples then the 11 disciples went to galilee to the mountain where jesus had told them to go and when they saw him they worshiped him but some doubted then jesus came to them and said all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me therefore go And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. So, what is the significance of this end of our service? What is the Spirit teaching us? in the way that we conclude our service, and and what is worship ultimately for? What is worship about? When I think of that question, I always think of the weight room at Calvin College as it was then when I went to that institution lo these many years ago. The weight room at Calvin College, why do I think of the weight room at Calvin College? The weight room at Calvin College when I went to college in the late 80s was not the bright shiny object that it is at Calvin now. It was in a basement of the field house. You had to go down the stairs and was off to the side. And as I recall it, there's a little check-in desk. There's a few uh, Nautilus machines, which are workout machines over here. There's some free weights over there. And there was a handful of treadmills. And then what I remember, and this is the important part, the whole thing was lined with mirrors. Every wall had mirrors on it. The whole weight room, mirrors all around. And as I recall back in the day, in the 80s at least, that was pretty typical of weight rooms. Lots of mirrors. I don't know if it's still true today, but it was true back then. Why do they put mirrors on those walls? I mean, paint would be cheaper, right? Just find some beige paint somewhere. I'm sure there's lots of it at Calvin slapping on the walls. That's way cheaper than mirrors. You don't have to polish them all the time. don't have to get out the Windex. Why did they have those mirrors up there? I think you all know because people like to watch themselves work out. When they do the curls, they like to see their biceps flex. When they do the squats, they like to see the definition in their thighs. This is who people are. And it reminds us that a big part of workout culture, let's be honest, is about, is for yourself. You're building up strength for the way you feel about yourself when you look in the mirror. You're not building up your strength because you have a task, a specific task, out there that requires you to have physical strength. You're doing it for the way you look in the mirror and the way you appear to other people. That's not all weight training. There is weight training and conditioning that's for something else. The skinny 16-year-old boy is on the basketball team He's tall, he plays in the post, and he knows he has to bulk up if he's going to help his team, so he hits the weight room, builds up a little muscle so he can bang in the post. The middle-aged mom, planning a trip to Yellowstone with her kids this summer. They're going to do a lot of hiking. She's not in great shape. They are. She hits the treadmill every day because she wants to be able to walk with her kids. The 75-year-old man who sees that there's a little dementia in his wife and realizes where this is going. So he hits the weight room, hits the treadmills. He wants to be healthy so he can be strong to take care of her and so that he can outlive her. There is a kind of strength training that's not for yourself, but it is for others. All these people may look better after their workout when they look in the mirror, but that's not what their workout is for. So it is with our worship. Our worship is not for ourselves and the way it makes us feel. It is not so that we can go home and look in the mirror and be thankful that we are part of the chosen elect. It's not even, although this is a nice thing and pleasant, it's not even so that when you're singing your songs or experiencing your worship or in this place, you can have that rush of good feeling that you sometimes have in worship when it's something that really blesses you. That's a wonderful feeling. Worship is not for creating that feeling. That's not worship is for. Good thing, but that's not worship is for. This holy habit is for others. This holy habit is ultimately for the blessing of God's world. Jesus' time with his disciples is coming to an end. As we said, they've been immersed in his grace. They've been immersed in his story. They've had this incredibly worshipful outpouring put on them, and they've seen it face to face. And at the end of all that, before he's about to ascend into heaven, what does Jesus do? He gives them a task for the world. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. He gives us them this incredibly rich and incredibly difficult task the blessing is for the work in the world and people associate this passage with evangelism but it's way more complicated than that there's a lot more than evangelism telling others about Jesus that that is being put on us by Jesus in this passage Uh, it's discipleship go make disciples disciples is a rich category A disciple is a person who has every single part of his or her life totally immersed in the work of God. When you are a disciple, everything you do and everywhere you go, you represent the name of Jesus. And it's not just about telling others about Jesus, which is terrifically important. It's the way you live your life and how you live it and what you choose in every place. So this task includes evangelism, telling others about the true Lord of this world and his saving power. It includes teaching everything Jesus has commanded, learning it and passing it on to the next generation and to others. It includes baptizing. Baptizing into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and into this community. Baptism includes all the responsibilities of being an effective and honest and charitable church member. It includes the koinonia that we see in the early church where they shared all things in common. This task that Jesus gives is a whole life, wholehearted task for the church and for the world. It is not easy. After the disciples had received this amazing blessing, they are sent out into the world with a really difficult task. And that is a typical pattern for God and for his people in Scripture. Moses receives the blessing of hearing the voice of God and seeing the sight of the burning bush, an epiphany of God in the desert. What comes with that epiphany? A task. Go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Really difficult. Abram receives the blessing of God. Abram, I will bless you, and I'm going to make your children like the stars of the sky. What comes with that blessing? A task. You've got to leave your home and go to the land I show you. Isaiah In that call to confession that we've been hearing all month, he sees the vision of God high and lifted up, and what comes with that? A task. Here I am, Lord, send me. Peter goes fishing with Jesus, catches more fish than he's ever caught in his life. What comes with that amazing blessing? A task. Go and be a fisher of men and women for me. And us. It's our mission too. We come to this place every week. We hear about the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We hear about his death and resurrection. And then we are received a difficult task. The same task the disciples got to go to the world and represent him with every part of our life. It's a big job. And in some ways it's maybe even more difficult than when Jesus gave it to his disciples. Because people aren't particularly receptive these days. You know, in Jesus' time, Paul could go to Athens and he could go to the marketplace and start talking about Jesus, and the intellectuals would say, Hey, that's interesting. Why don't you come down to the Areopagus and we'd like to hear more about this? They were curious. But I promise you, if at work you go to your coworker and say, Hey, over lunch, can I tell you about the wonderful work of Jesus? That's not going to be a conversation starter. And on top of that, we're tired. Life is hard. We're exhausted by the pressures of our families and the pressures of our lives. And this big task sometimes feels like a weight for us. And on top of that, honestly, sometimes we struggle with our own faith. You know, my faith isn't always a bright shining light. I'm not always on fire. If I have so little fire myself sometimes, how am I going to have someone else catch fire through me? If that's the way this task makes you feel, let me draw your attention to two little details in this text. Detail one, the 11 disciples. Matthew makes a point when he tells the story of saying there were only 11 disciples on the mountain. Why does he do that? He could have just said the disciples. He makes sure that we understand there was only 11. Why does he do that? Because he's emphasizing the weakness of these men. He's reminding us that these men have just been through schism and betrayal, that they've just completely failed, that this is a weak and broken and conflicted group. The number 11 limps, says commentator Dale Bruner. Second detail they all worshiped, but some doubted. Why didn't Mark do you have to tell us that? Why did we have to hear about the doubts of these disciples? Because doubt is a normal condition of Christian faith. All of us struggle with doubt sometimes. So Matthew shows us that there are 11 of them, reminds us of their brokenness, shows us their doubts, to show us that the power for this mission, as hard as it is, does not come from the excellence of the people doing it. It comes from the power of the one who gives the blessing. The strength to do the mission that Jesus calls us to here does not come from you or me it comes from the power of the one who raises his hands over you as you leave this place and blesses you and loves you completely we call this passage the great commission and you can understand why we are commissioned to do hard things here but that great commission that great task in our text is surrounded by two greater promises, both before and after. It's a sandwich. Our job is sandwiched by God's grace. Before comes a promise of power. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Wherever you go out there, whatever place you go, I reign, says Jesus. There is no bedroom or boardroom. There is no slum. There is no hospital waiting room. There is no graveside that you can stand beside. There is no place you go where I do not already reign in that place. So go in the confidence that wherever you walk, I rule there. That's before, and then afterwards comes a promise of presence. This power that God gives out isn't just given from on high. It stands right beside us and puts its hand on our shoulder And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I know you're going to be walking into hard places this week. Don't be afraid to be my witness. Don't be afraid to shine. I'm right here. My power is beside you. You may look at today's church and only see the problems and the conflicts and the shrinkage. And I don't blame you for seeing those things. I see those things too. But look at these 11 limping men carrying their doubts on the side of that hill in Galilee and consider what the Holy Spirit did with them. Matthew makes it clear that they're not much. But think of what the Holy Spirit did to them. 11 people, that's what he started with here. How many Christians are in the world today? 2.2 billion. 11 to 2.2 billion. That's what the Spirit did through them, and that's what the Spirit can do through us. And though it's not an easy mission, it is so needed. I was reading this week an article written by a secular therapist in New York, and he was talking about that he thinks that our, our culture is slipping into crisis, and the reason he says this is because his job is to deal with adolescence. And what he's noticed is that more and more of his adolescents are suicidal at a very young age. And that they're just sort of giving up. They're giving up on life in this world. These are secular kids. These are kids who are raised in prosperity, but they, they are not given any sense of identity, right? No meaning story. They're not told the meaning of their life. There's no purpose beyond themselves. The only thing they're ever called to is success. Right? That's all they hear from their parents is, you got to do good in school, you got to do well here, you got to do well there, keep working hard so you can have success. And what this therapist noticed, he had a particularly 13-year-old girl who reflected on this as a sort of a, a, a picture of what all these kids are going through, is that these kids see their parents who are successful, but they're miserable. So the kids are being told, be successful, be successful, Success is being held up. They see their parents who have achieved this success and they're miserable and they wonder, why bother? Why, said this 13-year-old girl, would I want any of this? Why do my parents want me to pretend as if they want it? They don't actually even pretend that they want this life. And they look at the big picture and they say, is this even worth living? We have good news for people like that. That child was made for more. She was made to be baptized. She was made for fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. She was made to live in the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the love of this community, and to have a future, a goal that goes beyond the end of her life, to live along eternal horizons, to have eternal life. And that life is real, and it is good. This week at the elders' meeting, we had, as we always have, elders and deacons reports on their visits. And there were probably 20 of them. Elders and deacons go out and they talk to various people in the congregation, see how they're doing. And one of the elders reported on a, a visit that she'd made with her visiting deacon. And they visited two older men members of this congregation, two men, who were friends. Both of them are over 80. Both of them find it hard to get to church. But they managed to get together for this visit, and the four of them had a visit. And these two older men had both lost their wives, and they were so excited to see each other. Hadn't seen each other in a long time. They were just overjoyed to be together. And the four of them sat down, and the two guys talked about life, and they remembered the good times. They talked about losing their wives, and how hard that was, and what grief felt like. And they, they shared the hope of the gospel with each other, and they were thankful for the promises they had in Jesus. At the end of the service, at the end of the, the meeting, the, the, the elder closed in prayer. It was just a, a time full of love and joy in Jesus. And then the elder said this. She, she, got out, she finished the meeting. She got in her car to go home. And instinctively, she reached over to turn on her radio because that's what she always does when she gets in her car. But then she stopped. And she said, no, I just... I just want to sit in the quiet for a while and drive in quiet and just remember how good it was to be with those four guys in the presence of God. That's a small story, but it shows us the presence of the big love that is ours when we belong to Jesus Christ in this community. So go. Represent that Lord to this world. Show that love to this world and don't be afraid because he is with you always, even at the end of the age. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave CRC's Sermon Podcast.